Hello, America. It is Eric Erickson here. Welcome. Good morning. It is, well, six after the hour. The phone number, if you would like to be a part of this year's program, is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. I was not going to begin here this morning, but I am deciding that I am going to begin here because I just uh, somebody sent this to me. And uh, it will great googly moogly. This this is from National Review. It is uh, Kyle Smith writing. It, it hit the wire a short time ago. This is this is crazy. Um, a major media and cultural as major media and cultural institutions reenact the crucible on the national stage. A particularly stupefying incident that may have escaped your attention illustrates how confidently race based hysteria stalks the landscape. A young black employee at Condé Nast quit her job and stormed out the door after her white boss gave her a copy of America's beloved writing guide, The Elements of Style. First published in 1918, the Slender Book was written by William Strunk Jr., then overhauled and expanded by E.B. White in 1959. Generations of students and writers have kept well-thumbed copies of Strunk and White, as the revised work is commonly known, by their desks. As of 2016, a database that tracks these things found that it was the single most often assigned text in college syllabuses, syllabi. I'll tell you right now that every aspiring writer should read The Elements of Style, Stephen King once wrote, failing to notice that the first six words of his sentence are superfluous, superfluous, indicating neglect of Strunk and White's famous injunction, omit needless words. Condé Nast CEO Roger Lynch, who avers that he is making every effort to add racial and ethnic diversity to the famously snooty publisher of Vogue and The New Yorker, once gave his executive assistant, Cassie Jones, a copy of Strunk and White because he thought it would prove useful to her. White is strongly associated with the company, having written extensively for The New Yorker, where the clean, lucid, Strunk White style has always been the model. It was a New Yorker essay in praise of Strunk's original book that led to White's being commissioned to revise it. Half a century or so later, the collaboration has sold some 10 million copies. Any reasonable person would have replied with thanks rather than hostility. Yet Jones quit days later in a huff, leaving the book on the CEO's desk as she did so. She considered the gift insulting, according to a New York Times report. With its suggestion that her own language skills were lacking, the gift struck Ms. Jones as a microaggression. Informed sources told the Times, stunned, Lynch told the paper, I really only had the intention, like every time I've given it before, for it to be a helpful resource, as it has been for me. I still use it today. I'm really sorry if she interpreted that way. By the way, I have my copy of Strunk and Right. Where is it? It's in one of my desk drawers here. I keep my Strunk and White copy. Yes. Here it is, right here, in my in my middle desk. I keep my struggle. You would never know it if you read me, given how terrible a proofreader I am. But it is right here in my desk. Assuming that's all there is to the story, the young assistant looks like an unfortunate example of the kind of fragile, self-sabotaging young adult our colleges are sending out into the workplace. Our campuses turn young people into cultural hemophiliacs who, if someone bumped into them on the sidewalk are likely to rupture a blood vessel and bleed out. 
Cassie Jones quit the most prestigious magazine publishing company in America because she was insulted by being given a common style guide. She was confident enough in her status as a victim that she told others about this. And on her way out the door, she dropped the book on her boss's desk as a symbol of her grievance. A moment's research would have provided her with ample evidence that millions of people have kindly given and gratefully accepted this elegant and useful little book. I'll stop reading there. This is what we're dealing with in the country at this moment. There are so many legitimate grievances right now, and I feel like they've been hijacked by the whiners. We have become a nation of whiners rioting in the streets because of their whines. I mean, seriously, there are real problems in this country. There are real problems with racial insensitivity in this country, but good Lord, Uncle Ben's rice and Mrs. Butterworth and Aunt Jemima. Okay, maybe Aunt Jemima. Let's give them that one. But Uncle Ben's rice, seriously? Are we to get rid of all black characters on food? I mean, Mrs. But I thought Mrs. Butterworth was like a British housekeeper. I wouldn't even try her syrup. If I knew she was modeled off of a black grandmother, I would be using hers instead of a log cabin because which great black grandmother in America is a bad cook? I don't know any, and I know lots of black grandmothers in America, and they're all fantastic cooks. If I knew that, I mean, maybe they should have branded her as that, and she would not be behind Aunt Jemima and log cabin. Always go with real maple syrup, by the way. Mrs. Butterworth, who knew it was a symbol of racism? And now in London, you know the controversy in London? Someone has figured out that uh, Rice Krispies has three little white, uh, what are they, elves, fairies? I don't know. I guess they're not, that That would be politically incorrect. I, I, you got three little white dudes who are the symbol of Rice Krispies, Snap, Crackle, and Pop. And then on Cocoa Crisps, you have a monkey. It is clearly racist, apparently, according to one guy in London who's tried to generate controversy. And at first, I thought he was a troll, but he's apparently a real person with a real grievance that the Cocoa Puffs don't have a black character. They have a monkey and that that in and of itself is racism. Do you know the latest one that's circulating around the internet? Uh, who was the boxer, John Brown? The the the, the boxer? Uh, no, no, no. Let me get this one right. Boxer wrench inventor. This is the latest one that the monkey wrench needs to be changed because Jack Johnson, the first black heavyweight boxing champion, patented a wrench. Now, his was not the first wrench, but his was a wrench. He patented it in 1922. And now there is a rumor going around that you must throw away all of your wrenches because they are racist. The monkey wrench, they say, was the Jack Johnson wrench. And that because he was black, it began being referred to as the monkey wrench. And it is racist. And that's not true. That's not true. Yes, Jack Johnson invented a, a, a wrench. He patented it in 1922. But the monkey wrench was invented uh, by someone else, Charles Monkey. Charles Monkey spelled his last name M-O-N-C-K-Y. Uh, they weren't going to sell the wrench that way because no one would know how to pronounce monkey uh, if you saw that spelling. And so they changed the name to monkey, M-O-N-K-E-Y. And they sold the wrench. And now circulating on social media across America are claims that the monkey wrench is a racist way to refer to the black boxer's wrench. And it's not true. And yet I've gotten that from more than one. I have seen famous people put that on Instagram. We, my friends, are in a crisis of grievance in this country. 
where every whiner has come out of the book and, and every troll and every malcontent who doesn't know their history, like the ACLU yesterday came out and claimed that uh, the death penalty is derived from defenses of lynching. That's right. According to the ACLU, the death penalty came from lynching. Now, last I read Hammurabi's Code from thousands of years ago, uh, there was no lynching in there, but there was a death penalty. Last I read Genesis 6, when Noah gets off the boat, God himself says to impose the death penalty on anyone who takes the life of another person. Because if they disrespect those who are made in the image of God, they themselves must be removed from the gene pool. Paraphrasing God there. Sorry, sorry, big guy. And yet the ACLU wants to push this around. And it got thousands and thousands of retweets from people who took it seriously. That we got to get rid of the, de the death penalty because it is a, it, it, it is a, um, it's a, a grievance based on, it's based on lynching. This is nonsensical. This is crazy. We are being hijacked. The the insane asylum wants to take the, the the insane want to take over the asylum. That's what's going on right now. Strunken White is a symbol of racism. What? Because E.B. White's last name should he have changed his last name to something else? I mean, who in their right mind? And, and that's what I take from this. And maybe I'm interpreting too much. But you give this girl a book called Strunken White's Elements of Style. Oh, they want me to speak like right. Remember the holy bonics nonsense a while back. Good grammar is apparently racist. Sounding like you know something is apparently racist. This country will not survive if we continue to go down this road. And here's the problem. And this is what actually makes me mad about this. There are real legitimate grievances out there. There actually are real legitimate grievances. There is racism in the United States of America today. You see it in what happened to Ahmed Arbery here in Georgia in Brunswick. You see it there. That kid killed Ahmed Arbery and then referred to him as an effing N-word. There is real racism in America, and the local district attorney decided not to prosecute, told the police not to do anything, and even the police thought something needed to be done. And this only came out when someone put the video up on YouTube. We should not have to see it with our own eyes to understand that this sort of stuff exists in America. And who is going to take it seriously when you have little grievance mongers throwing down copies of the elements of style and walking off the job because they're offended? Who is going to take it seriously when you have people saying, oh, they wanted me to speak with proper grammar because they're racist? Who's going to take it seriously? You need to take it seriously. And, and here's the thing. You should take it seriously. It is difficult at this point to engage on the topic when the people who take it seriously but are also nuts say, well, yeah, you agree with that. Well, what about this? What about this? What about Uncle Ben's rice? But you still have to take it seriously. You still have to engage. You still have to do the right thing even when you're surrounded by crazy, still do the right thing. But it's hard. And it's frustrating. 
you know, I was going to get into this later. I, I, I will get into this here just a little bit right now. So just up the road from me, uh, literally like 200 feet from me is Monroe County. Uh, and they have their local newspaper, the Monroe County Reporter. Uh, it is a, it's a great newspaper. I get a copy of it. I get a subscription to it. And on the headline, uh, you've got a Forsyth City Council member, Julia Stroud, leading a protest crowd against the newspaper because they want better and more coverage in Monroe County's newspaper. Crowd, protest, reporter, editors, coverage, remarks. Let me read this. This is Bill Weaver. A crowd of several hundred people gathered for a rally Saturday morning in downtown Forsyth with several speakers calling for Will Davis to step down from his position as publisher-editor of the Monroe County Reporter and give up his one-half ownership of the newspaper. A half dozen people spoke at the rally, including Monroe County School Superintendent Mike Hickman, with various speakers claiming Davis has used the paper in his 13 years of half-ownership to intimidate, demean, and embarrass people rather than be a unifying force in the community. With recent rallies across the nation sometimes spawning violence, numerous law enforcement officers were present at or near the rally. Two uniformed officers stood in front of the newspaper offices on South Jackson Street, even though the rally was held one block north. The rally was entirely peaceful. Oh, good grief. There were three common criticisms mentioned. Let's let's go over here to page 6A. They do this in newspapers now. Boy, this newspaper has more pages than the Macon Telegraph. They say that he criticized individuals. He criticized the actions of well-intentioned elected officials. And he published sensitive private information about individuals to embarrass them. Two speakers questioned the propriety of Davis's promotion in which he's giving away an AR-15. Aha! Hickman said Davis had been disrespectful to black students, citizens, and parents. We need unity. Our officials have been elected and they're wonderful people trying their very best to make our county even better. And it seems as though the reporter tries to drag that down says the school superintendent accountable to those very elected officials. Hickman said of Davis's criticism of black citizens, it's quite hypocritical for someone to be ridiculing our black children and our black parents and our black community, but on Friday night, be on the sidelines taking pictures of those same children. He said Davis is an impediment to racial harmony. Amanda Turner, an educator, said stories in the newspaper were written with clear biases and racist overtones. Adelia Wilder, doctor, a Bibb County educator, says Will Davis routinely uses his power as social media platform and the county's most important news resource to hateful, divisive rhetoric. And on and on it goes. Oh, good Lord. Get your own newspaper or cancel your subscription. You're, you're protesting a newspaper. The newspaper is supposed to be a voice of unity in our community. No, it's supposed to tell you what's going on in your community. The, the, you know, if he was going after Republicans, you people would be cheering it on because you think the Republicans are an impediment. You're protesting a newspaper. Get a life. At least they use drunken white of the newspaper. <gasps> you may protest that now, too. The full number here, you want to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Al Moeller going to join me at the bottom of the hour to talk about his new book. Uh, and this evening, uh, I may see you around Clarksville. I'm, I'm headed up there this evening. It's a bit of a hike from my house up there, but I'm going up there. Uh, so I'll be around. Uh, Y'all, listen, I'm...
I'm going to come back to this Monroe County thing. And we need to deal with the police issue in Atlanta. Um, very briefly, and I, I want to delve into this more. After I talk to, to Dr. Mueller, I'll spend some more time on this. But in Atlanta yesterday, the district attorney indicted uh, Officer Rolf, who killed Rashard Brooks. Here's what makes it really notable to me. A couple of things. One, the Georgia Bureau of Investigation is required by law to conduct thorough investigations of any police shooting. They have not finished their investigation, and in every other instance, uh, the district attorney has waited for the GBI investigation before filing charges. Uh, and uh, you've got uh, Paul Howard now rushing in this case. You also had Paul Howard say that Officer Brosnan, who was the other officer, would be a state's witness and agreed to plead guilty. Uh, officer Brosnan has now come out through his lawyer and said he has not agreed to plead guilty and he's not going to be a witness for the state. Uh, you've also got this. Two weeks ago, Paul Howard, the district attorney, rushed to indict two black police officers for smashing the windows of a vehicle to tase two black college students. Uh, race is important here because those two black officers who tased two black students are said to have been part of a white supremacist, um, essentially propping up white supremacy by being on the police force. And at the time, the reason Paul Howard indicted these two police officers was for using excessive force with a deadly weapon. Now, the reason they smashed the windows, if you ever watched the video, is, is because these two kids weren't listening to the police who were telling them to stop. They were ignoring the police, trying to drive off. The police were banging on the window, telling them to stop. They wouldn't. The police finally smashed the window and tased them to get them to stop. So two weeks ago, he indicts these officers for using force with deadly weapons, tasers. At his press conference yesterday, he said Officer Rolf had nothing to worry about because a taser is not a deadly weapon. There's a double standard there. He indicted Officer Rolf for felony murder, which could get Officer Rolf the death penalty. But here's the rest of the story. Paul Howard, the district attorney in Fulton County, is under investigation by the Georgia Bureau of Investigation. It is alleged that Paul Howard used a nonprofit group to supplement his income, that he improperly lived off the money of a nonprofit while also being DA. And he cut the GBI that is investigating him out of the loop on this situation. Paul Howard is in a runoff. He was not able to win his election as DA. A member of the Fulton County DA's office is challenging Paul Howard for his seat. And so Paul Howard is rushing now in this wave of Black Lives Matters and racism in American police brutality. He's rushing to indict as many police officers as he can as an election issue. He's essentially standing on the backs of these police officers, grandstanding on their backs in order to win re-election. That's what this is about. He alleged yesterday that these police officers stood on the body of uh, Richard Brooks after he was dead and kicked his body as he was dying. Now, I find that allegation troubling, and if it's true, these officers need to be punished. But also, we've seen a whole lot of video. We've seen a, a, a great deal of video 
of that night. And I don't recall seeing video of that. And you would think, given the amount of video that we've seen, that if there was video of that, we would have seen it. And, and again, I, this is not to dispute that this happened. And if it happened, they need to be prosecuted for that. But I'm actually kind of surprised to hear the allegation yesterday because I watched all the videos and I never saw that. And you know how the, the national media works. They would have highlighted that, and they did not highlight that. And yet we have all of this video of the guy lying there dead. And no one seems to have seen that except the DA in Atlanta. And that, that just seems weird to me. This isn't going to end well. And yesterday, police officers in Atlanta walked off the job and refused to respond to calls. Uh, we're seeing a crack-up happening. And overzealous prosecutors are part of the issue here, particularly when they're up for re-election. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. You know, I, so I, I'm in a PCA church now. And the reason I am in a PCA church is I grew up in the First Baptist Church in Jackson, Louisiana. And my pastor, Joe Neesom, uh, just was still to this day the gold standard for me for, for expository preaching. I got to Mercer University and decided, eh, you know, I'll go to the First Baptist Church in, in Macon, Georgia. And, well, the woman in the pulpit that Sunday, uh, she actually preached on how we needed to be less scriptural and more sacred, and she wasn't actually the preacher, but they let her get up and talk, and I was terribly confused, and I ran home, and I called my preacher. I said, Brother Joe, what should I do? And he said, go find a church with the letters PCA after him. I'd be one, but for the sprinkling. So I've been there, but uh, my heart is still with the Southern Baptists, uh, even though I went to RTS uh, to work on my uh, MDiv. Uh, but I'm a big fan of my next guest, uh, the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, uh, Dr. Albert Muller. How are you, sir? Eric, I'm doing great. Thank you. And uh, by the way, let me just uh, tell your listeners that that church in Macon is not a part of the Southern Baptist Convention. So just, just <laughs> had to say that. Yes, that's true. That 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 very true. Um, now, I want to talk to you. Boy, I've got a lot to talk to you about it. And, you know, I, I've got to say as well, you, you, your morning briefing podcast, I am not a big podcast listener, and, and yours is, is just must listen to it, it so reminds me Thank of back you. in the day my, my dad was a huge paul harvey fan and the format you use and i just i love listening to it every day well i deeply appreciate that eric that that means a lot to know well so in your new book the gathering storm secularism culture and the church it came out uh, the beginning of the month and boy is it a timely book to come out right now even before the supreme court decision but now even more so well, the Supreme Court decision is certainly a big wake-up call for Christians. That something's going on here. The, the tectonic plates of the culture shifting. And as you know, I borrowed that uh, the title of the book, The Gathering Storm, from the first volume of Winston Churchill's History of the Second World War. The whole point of Churchill was that for the decade of the 1930s, all the smart people in Europe tried to deny the obvious, and that was the, uh, the gathering storm of Nazi Germany. Uh, I'm not saying that our time is exactly in, uh, you know, an analog to that, but the point is that I want to help people to connect the dots and see what's going on. The, uh, the secularization of our culture is comprehensive. It's not just a little issue here and there. You can't take Monday's uh, uh, tragic Supreme Court decision and uh, explain it in a vacuum. It has to be in a far larger process of vast moral and social change. 
Well, let's talk about that moral social change. I've argued for a while now that uh, what we are seeing is we're not seeing the ending of religion. We're seeing the creation of a new religion uh, where God is now government and and religious right is now protest in the streets and the sacrament is abortion. And it it seems like all of the parallels we're seeing now on the left these days, the secular left that doesn't believe in God actually mirrors what, what other religions would do. You know, uh, you use some of the same language I do, especially about abortion being a sacrament, and uh, that that's a very sad thing to have to say. But, you know, this is the way it's been uh, throughout the modern age, Eric. Uh, all of the pseudo-religious uh, utopian political systems have taken on a religious structure. They have a, they have a creation account. They have an eschatology. Uh, they have their own... Uh, uh, a message of, of salvation. And yes, they, they, I think, by the way, you and I know this because human beings are made in God's image and, and they know that they're dealing with ultimate issues. And so, I mean, th- there was no one as ardently religious in one sense as the guardians of the secularism of the Soviet Union. And yet we see the same thing going on right now. <laughs> we do. I, I, I've got a, what am I, I you may know uh, Derek Thomas for, from Reformed Theological Seminary. I, I took all of my systematics with Derek. And one of the things he always has said is that uh, with secularism, you have no answer for what became, what came before the Big Bang and, and Christians do. And I'll never forget one time mentioning that in a speech and I had an atheist uh, come up to me afterwards and was just that was a, in in a 20 minute speech that was the line that enraged him that somehow I could have a definitive knowledge of what happened before the big bang and, and how dare I even suggest that and it, that has always struck me that uh where Christians really do have a level of certainty that the world doesn't have uh the world is very certain that none of us should have certainty well, absolutely, except about the things in which the secularists believe we must have absolute certainty, like about the fact that uh, someone born biologically male can now be uh, declared to be a woman. Uh, so, you know, uh, I, I'm astounded by the the certainties that aren't certain at all that are now being <laughs> coerced and enforced by the uh, the secular progressives. Uh, they have their list of certainties, and uh, they're they're going to press them to the max. So, yes, so they believe in science, but believe that you can be born gay or straight, but pick whether or not you're a boy or a girl. Yeah, what they believe in is, uh, is, is that all the old authoritative positions, all the existing moral structures have to be swept away. They'll use science if that's the argument. But as you're just pointing out quite right, uh, rightly, they, they will use whatever is, uh, is, is at hand to make this argument. And the inconsistencies are massive. I mean, if, if you take them on, uh, uh, it, you know, the issues related to biology, well, all of a sudden they're like postmodern deconstructionists. Uh, but on climate change and, uh, and, and other issues, no, they, they, they'll bring out the reams of data. And, and look, these are debatable issues, but the fact is there's no consistency in their argument. It, so it, I... You, you you may have to correct me here because I may be completely wrong, and, and I'm recalling an, an old uh, lecture from, from Dr. Thomas that uh, when Paul is making his arguments on the Areopagus, he's essentially calling back to the Greek philosophers who are sitting there to old ideas because at the time in, in, in Greek society – uh, the new ideas were treated skeptically, but in, in the modern, rich, wealthy Roman society that was throwing off the shackles of, of Jupiter and, and, and the gods, it was the new ideas that were embraced. And I, he, he was 
he was using this to try to show what happens with secularism here. If you use the dichotomy between the Greeks and the Romans uh, in this Roman society that compared to the Greeks seemed to be more secular, even despite all the symbolism and ritual, that in this society we have secularists who it's every new idea is seized upon and all the old ideas have to be cast aside. And yet when you actually look at stable societies, it's it's people should be much more suspicious of the new ideas and maybe be a little more grounded in the old ideas. Well, absolutely, because uh, it just even the stuff going on on, on on so much of the current conversation and even on the streets of America, uh, the, uh, folks have to use the products of the inherited civilization of the West in order to make the critique against the West that they insist upon upon the streets. Uh, not to say <laughs> that there aren't valid issues being raised, but the fact is they're saying tear down this system. But this system is the only system that has allowed the kind of, uh, of movement that they have created. Now, a, a lot of people will hear us talk, and, and I, I, it's, it's to some degree an echo chamber, and then I think the people listening to you and me just agree would be agreeing and nodding along with us. Where do Christians go from here? I, I, I see some people want to withdraw inward and, and, and pull away from society, and yet Jesus says you've got to go out and— preach and teach and make disciples. Where, where's the balance for people of faith? You know, that's a great question, Eric. I, I, I don't think uh, that's as hard a challenge for us as many people might, uh, might, might kind of imply. For one thing, I don't think there's any great uh, danger to Hollywood that Christians are going to take over the, the major studios. The engines of cultural production are already outside of our hands, and I mean far outside of our hands. Uh, and in the hands of people who look at the modern Democratic Party as woefully too conservative, uh, higher education, that dominant culture, uh, just basically way outside our control. The media empires and uh, and the powers that be in the and the larger economy, largely in the in the same situation. And so it's not as if Christians have to sit down and say, OK, do we run the culture or not? Well, here's a clue. We're not running the culture. And so <laughs> the question is, how do we negotiate faithfully, raise our children? Uh, be faithful in our churches, and, and yes, like the early Christians in the Roman Empire, uh, be a, a, a transformative influence given what we do have as, a, as our ability to, to preach and teach, to share, to show the world what Christianity is. Well, it does almost seem to me, and I'm, I'm bothered by—gosh, um, I, I want to be careful how I say this because I don't want to offend certain people— um, there seems to be a movement within Christendom to make it look in some way cool or relevant to culture in a way that I, I don't necessarily know is is good for Christianity, that uh, we should right. almost be countercultural, it, it, it seems to me, and set ourselves apart. If you go back to the early church, one of the things that stood out to the Roman society was how these these Christians were doing these weird things like taking care of strangers and stuff that, that wasn't, wasn't something Roman society did, a very litigious society. Here are these people who aren't suing each other. And it, it seems to me that we should almost be more countercultural. And as society crumbles, people look and say, hey, why are these people not like the rest of us? Right. You know, it reminds me of, uh, uh, of what, what we as Christians know is the tenacity of love. And uh, we, we've got to keep loving people when they don't love us. And uh, when uh, I understand what you're talking about, there, there's, there's certainly an impulse to want to be culturally acceptable or at least culturally cool on something. But the fact is that if we really believe that we are held by Scripture to, say, just a biblical understanding of sexuality and gender, then 
to be honest, the world's not going to consider us cool, no matter how good our paintings are. Uh, and uh, so we, we just have to be found guilty of doing good, even when people are opposed to us. And again, th- that didn't have to be put in the New Testament if it wasn't going to be needed. And so evidently <laughs> it's right. needed. And uh, and we're not to be anxious and in fear and certainly not in anger towards the world. Uh, rather, this is an opportunity for us to show the world what uh, what Christ's people do and, and, and how we live. Now, if you're just tuning in, I'm, I'm talking to, to Dr. Muller from Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. His new book is out, The Gathering Storm, Secularism, Culture, and the Church. Uh, before I let you go, let, let me switch to politics gently here. I continue yeah. to engage with people who I, I know they're, they're Christians, they're, they're good people of faith, but they're so frustrated and worried about the direction of culture in America. And I talk to so many and they say, well, you know, we need to be just like the left. We, we need to fight like them. They're convinced the left fights in some nastier way that we must fight. And and we, we've got to fight in this way if we want to preserve things. And my thinking is always, you know, I, I'm headed to eternity. I'm not going to do something temporary that jeopardizes my witness to other people. And it just seems like even within Christianity these days, there's a segment of Christians who are so worked up and spun up on politics that they're, they're almost losing their religion, thinking they've got to lose it to save it. Yeah, that's a very legitimate concern. There is no biblical justification for living in a mode of anger. And uh, so that's uh, that's something that really is 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 not an option for us. And and I, I love the way you set that up with so many Christians saying, look at the left, and, and look at how they play hardball, and and uh, look at the uh, at the take no prisoners approach. Well, the secular left thinks that their plan is all there is. We as Christians, we, we, we're I'm a conservative, a very proud traditional conservative, but I don't believe that politics is ever going to deliver on. Uh, all that uh, that I look for, I, I believe only Christ will. And so, you know, Christians, we're the people who can't take the route of ultimate politics because we can't believe that politics is ultimate. We just have to be faithful. <laughs> yeah, a- absolutely. I, I, I remark often these days, particularly with environmentalists, that it, it's so interesting to watch the secular religion that in Christianity, as long as you repent of your sins, you get salvation. And in secularism, you can repent of your sins as long as you want, but as long as there are other sinners, you're still toast unless you get rid of them. And it, yeah, and I quite just, honestly, an awful lot of what's going on is uh, is repenting for someone else's sin. Right. Uh, you know, the, the, you mentioned the climate change. It's people who get on an airplane and fly across the Atlantic to go to a conference to complain about people who fly across the Atlantic. <laughs> right. Absolutely. And, and now that this terrible trend I'm seeing that that you and I may not be a racist, but we, we've had racist ancestors and therefore we benefited from their sin and we must repent of their sin and somehow make right on their sin. And I, I don't know that that ends well in, in the arguments of the day in any capacity. Well, for one thing, we can't explain who we are without our ancestors. And another thing, in a biblical understanding, we cannot repent for someone else's sin. We, we, can, we, can, we can note it with lament, but, but we can't repent for the dead. We can only repent for our own sins. We've got to do our best to live faithfully in this world. And we take history into account, but, uh, but we've got to live in this world in faithfulness. And, uh, you know, the, the, the behind all of that is, uh, is, is frankly a frustration with society that, ca- that can never turn out in a healthy way. And uh, we're at a testing point in this culture right now, and that, that means not only is the culture being tested, but, but we are. The church is being tested as well.
Definitely so. Al Moeller, it is a pleasure to spend some time with you on the phone. I, I really did enjoy this conversation, and I have not yet gotten my copy of your book, but I intend to, The Gathering Storm. Thank you for stopping by. I really appreciate it. Well, Eric, thank you so much. I enjoyed the conversation, and I'm going to make sure you get that book. Uh, thank you so much. Well, actually, don't. Don't, 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 because okay. being an author as well, I know I need to buy a copy, and I actually just clicked the button, so it's coming. <laughs> Well, so, thank you. God bless you. And, and it, it's been great. I enjoyed the intelligent conversation. Thank you so much. Al Muller, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. His new book, The Gathering Storm, Secularism, Culture, and the Church. Uh, his book, I just clicked it, seventeen ninety nine hardcover, but nine seventy five if you get it on Kindle at Amazon. Uh, I've read multiple copies of his book. They were supposed to send me a review copy, and, and I, they actually sent it to my office instead of the house. So I haven't seen it, uh, but I intend to read it because I've read all of Al's books, and I will read this one as well. Uh, when we come back, we've got to delve into the police shooting and the John Bolton controversy. If you want to get a copy of Al Mohler's book, uh, The Gathering Storm, text the word DATA to 33777, and I will send you back a link. Uh, you'll get the IHME model, the Georgia model for, for where we are with the virus, but at the top, uh, I have put in Al Mohler's uh, book, a link to Amazon, so you can buy it, The Gathering Storm. I enjoy that conversation. Uh, Al Mohler, somebody I look up to, respect deeply. Uh, we've not actually spent that much time in conversation. We've traded emails in the past, but we've never actually had a uh, extended conversation. So that was good. I, I was so glad to, to have him. Now, we've got other stuff we got to talk about. John Bolton, uh, the fallout is beginning from his book. They're sending me a copy of it. Uh, I, I got an angry email yesterday. In fact, you know, it, it was a, actually a direct message on Instagram. I, I don't want to, I, I don't want to be critical of the person who sent it. I understand where she's coming from, uh, but she's very upset with me because I said, I have invited John Bolton to come on and, and talk about his book. And here, here's what she said. Uh, I have been your greatest fan and listen to your show every day. I've defended and supported you when others called you progressive in sheep's clothing. I've always believed in your commitment to our country until today, in all caps. I thought I was hearing things when I heard John Bolton's name. I almost passed out when you said he was going to be a guest on your show. Do you need ratings that bad or do you have to need to create more chaos? America is in the most turbulent time in American history. Like him or not, re-election of Donald Trump is the only thing standing between freedom and socialism. Yet you have chosen to host the very man who betrayed the president by writing a book containing classified information that could potentially hurt Trump. Right now, our choices are slim. Why are you opening this Pandora's box? Now, why are you being paid off? I'm not bl a blind Trump follower. Here's what I am, an American, a mother who is absolutely terrified. You're just adding more stress. I do not mean to stress you guys out, but I am actually fascinated by the fallout from this book uh, because this is a guy who went on TV repeatedly, demanded to be in the Trump administration. And, well, I shouldn't say demanded, but clearly campaigned to be in the Trump administration, got the job, served there, apparently saw all of this that was going on and chose not only to not leave, uh, but also to not participate in impeachment hearings and waited until his book came out to spill the beans right before the election. And I want to ask him about it. This is a man I have respected for quite a while. Uh, this is a man most of the people, in fact, I, I actually, this is kind of funny. So one of the people who complained yesterday when I said I, I was going to have him be a guest on the program and talk to him about his book is someone who just lit me on fire and I started digging around and you go back long enough in people's uh, Facebook pages and you find all sorts of like all of his stuff cheering on John Bolton.
I'm just I, I this is the thing that that actually strikes me right now as most interesting as the most interesting part of the conservative movement is how quickly people are willing to turn on those they once liked. And I am deeply fascinated by this. Uh, John Bolton is someone I've always taken seriously. He's got a book out. He's got concerns about the president. I'm interested in those concerns, but I'm also very interested in why do you wait until now when your book comes out to do that? Um, is this opportunistic and why should it now have credibility? Um, but I, I think John Bolton is someone that uh, those of us on the right long respected, loved him when he was U.N. ambassador under George W. Bush, uh, booed the Senate when they blocked him from becoming the permanent U.N. ambassador, cheered when he came into the Trump administration. I'm not going to vilify the guy now, uh, but I am deeply interested in and somewhat skeptical of the claims of his book. And I, I think being someone who is skeptical of the president but being willing to vote for the president – and being uh, is, being a, a former fan of Bolton's who's also skeptical of him, I, I think you guys should get answers to your questions as much as I should get answers to mine. I'm not trying to stress anybody. I'm not trying to freak anybody out. Uh, I'm not trying to burn a movement down or, or, or sabotage the president. But I got questions. I, I got a lot of questions. And so I intend to read the book and ask John Bolton my questions. I mean, some of the stuff, it just seems implausible to me. That is, like, Some of the other stuff seems completely plausible stuff from the president. Um, but also, you can see it from one of two angles. And, and Bolton has chosen, to, chosen now to see stuff in the worst possible light. Did he see it at the time? And what did he do within the White House? Is he anonymous? Uh, I don't think that's possible, but I got questions. So, I, yeah, you're absolutely right. I, I intend to to interview the guy. Um, I, I have invited him on the program. When we come back, though, we're not going to talk about John Bolton. We're going to talk about, well, the situation in Monroe County and also what's going on with the police up in Atlanta uh, and the hate crimes legislation appears to be just disastrous. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. Uh, we've got some breaking news at the moment I've got to get to. The Supreme Court in a 5-4 decision has ruled against Donald Trump in his bid to end the Obama-era immigration program, uh, Shielding Dreamers, the DACA program. Um, according to the Supreme Court, uh, Donald Trump cannot uh, end the legal protections for young immigrants. It was a 5-4 decision. John Roberts joining the four liberals on the court against the president of the United States. John Roberts has written the decision for the majority uh, on that issue. Uh, there you go. Now, the phone number is 404-872-0750, 1-800-WSB-TALK. Uh, nope, I'm sorry. That's my evening show. You guys have to call 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Uh, I'm, I'm scanning this real quick and looking through emails. Uh, the Roberts majority opinion is that the administration, it's not that the administration can't cancel DACA. It's that they did it in a way that violated the Administrative Procedures Act. Uh, so the president, in other words, according to this decision, the president can cancel uh, what was done, but that it was done in such a way that um, 
it was done in, in an improper way. Let, let me, here's, here's what they wrote. We do not decide whether DACA or its rescission or sound policies. The wisdom of those decisions is none of, those concern, none of our concern. We address only whether the agency, that is the Department of Homeland Security, complied with the procedural requirement that it provide a reasoned explanation for its action. Here, the agency failed to consider the conspicuous issues of whether to retain forbearance and what, if anything, to do about the hardship to DACA recipients. That dual failure raised doubts about whether the agency appreciated the scope of its discretion or exercised that discretion in a reasonable manner. The appropriate recourse is, therefore, to remand to the Department of Homeland Security so that it may consider the problem anew. So they're not getting rid of um, they're not getting rid of the ability of the president to end it. What they're doing is saying that they need to actually follow proper procedure. There's an Administrative Procedures Act that essentially governs how executive orders and regulations can be rolled back and enacted. And this 5-4 decision is suggests that they didn't follow that law in rolling it back, not that they can't do it. So a lot of people cheering DACA survives, and actually John Roberts is painting the road for how it can be repealed. There you go. Um, okay. I need to go back to something. And this is this is local to me. It's not local to y'all, but but it, we're we're actually um we're we're actually dealing with the issue uh nationally and we're dealing with the issue locally. So let me this one this one bothers me on a couple of levels. There was a protest in Monroe County, that is Forsyth, Georgia. If you don't know uh, where it is, uh, let, let me give you the, the the front page. Bill Weaver is the reporter for all of these things. Uh, and there are members of the Monroe County Commission and others who have come up and they are complaining about the Monroe County reporter and its publisher, Will Davis, who I know. Bill Weaver writes this. Uh, there were three common criticisms mentioned by the speakers. They claim Davis has written racist things in the newspaper and on social media and has published sensitive private information about individuals to embarrass them. And he routinely criticizes the actions of well-intentioned elected officials. Um... Okay. Um, oh, my. So the reporter is only one of two newspapers in Georgia that's growing in circulation. It's an award-winning newspaper. Uh, here's one of the things that happened. This, this is what bothers me. The school superintendent came out and accused Davis essentially of racism. Not only did he criticize Davis for racism, criticize uh, his coverage of black citizens, saying, this is a quote from the school superintendent, Mr. Hickman. It's quite hypocritical for someone to be ridiculing our black children and our black parents and our black community, but on Friday night, be on the sidelines taking pictures. We've got to get the obstacle out of the way. I, I think the school superintendent probably needs to resign. And the reason I'm saying that the school superintendent, Mr. Hickman, should resign is uh, Mr. and Mrs. Davis send their children to public schools in Monroe County. 
I, I got to say, uh, and part of this, by the way, you should know that the Monroe County uh, reporter has covered the fact that the school superintendent's father uh, had been arrested and also that the Board of Education had allegedly hired a child molester. And to have the school superintendent go to a rally against a newspaper where he blasts the publisher whose children could go to private school but choose to be a part of the community and a part of the public school system, how are his kids going to feel comfortable being in a school system run by a school superintendent who goes to a rally and says their dad is racist? How, how, how is that going to work? And here's the other thing. Um, I noticed that they got pictures of the rally. Uh, and, and while there are a few black faces there, there sure are a whole lot of white people complaining about a newspaper in Monroe County, uh, a bunch of white liberals and elected officials who don't like the coverage. If you don't like the coverage, don't read the newspaper. It's notable that this newspaper is increasing in circulation, and yet you got a bunch of white liberals in Monroe County, a decidedly Republican county, are lashing out so much for free speech. They only like the free speech that makes them feel good. You're going to blast the local newspaper for its coverage? You know, we're living, by God, we are living in a day and age where you have uh, major national press lamenting the death of the local media lamenting the lack of coverage of local politics. There's going to be a rise of corruption. So here's a local newspaper that covers all of those issues, and the same liberals who are upset about the death of local news are like, we got to kill off the local newspaper because it's tearing our community apart. Maybe it's not the newspaper tearing your community apart. You, do, you don't have to read this stuff. That's the most annoying thing about this. You don't have to read this stuff. I understand the controversy around the country right now, these these statues. I, I understand the, 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 the symbolism of the Confederate statue. If you, if you were black in this country, you look at that statue and say, this was put up on public property as a big middle finger to both Union soldiers and to black people. And I have to look at that every day and, and pretend there's not a problem with it. I think. I think if I were black, I would have a problem with it. I get that. But you don't have to see the newspaper. You don't have to subscribe to the newspaper. If you're a politician, you don't have, you know, if this was a blog, would you be upset? No, it's a newspaper and newspapers have symbolic value to liberals. They love a free press so long as it tells them what they want to hear. You got a bunch of, here, here's this uh, Monroe City Council member, Julius Stroud. He says they want better and more coverage in the Monroe County. They want better and more coverage in the Monroe County newspaper? Well, go build your own newspaper. Okay, let me, this this is this is the local newspaper here. I, I, I have a copy of it on the, the front page. City County at odds on 911 funding, uh, crowd protests, uh, newspaper coverage, city okay, county okays, final action to bring water to the Juliet era, demonstrators march for justice, local COVID-19 update, uh, an opinion section. What else? You got obituaries. What else? Oh, you got the, the crime report. You got mugshots. You, you get crime updates. 
You get uh, election results. <gasps> oh, wait, what else is there? We got a community section. What? We got a newspaper with a community section. It's Rob's Place in Precise. Opens door, opens hearts. Entertainment returns to Monroe County soon. Uh, you got the Board of Education honors retirees. You, you got Monroe County kids. Who's going to college? Which college are they going to? Health department reopens. Renovations postponed. Our cats invading the area. Navasit begins virtual intensive care in Monroe County. You've even got a local sports section covering the local sports in a place there aren't any. What more do you want? You want more local coverage? Go get your own newspaper. This is the point. And, and you're like, why are you f- fixated on this Monroe County thing? Because I'm so freaking tired of the hypocrisy of a bunch of these people. You're protesting a newspaper. Of all the stuff to protest in America today, you're protesting the First Amendment? I thought we needed more of this. If you don't like it, go start competition. And in fact, the data suggests this is actually one of the few newspapers in the state of Georgia that's gaining in circulation. But oh my goodness. A Forsyth man is accused of a hit and run on Saturday after an alert witness allegedly followed him and told police of his whereabouts. Sanjo Jarrell told Forsyth Police Corporal Kim Barnett that she was traveling patrol road at its intersection with North Lee Street when an older model white van headed north towards I-75, ran the red light on Lee Street and struck the front of her Honda Accord before continuing down the hill. Gerald called 911. The wreck happened around 10.36 a.m. on Saturday. Hmm. Wonder who that was about. I bet it was one of the angry people who were protesting who didn't like that coverage. I hear it's the school superintendent who got upset. I I, I, I just... Uh, I, wow. Um, uh, wow. Wow. This is why, you know, it infuriates me to see elected officials, and and this should be a level of, and by the way, kudos to the Monroe County reporter for not blowing up these people. They should. These elected officials who are complaining about the coverage that they get, how much more arrogance can you imagine a, a school superintendent dealing with a parent whose kids are in public schools going to a a rally to call their dad racist because he's upset with coverage. I mean, and and let's be honest here. There's been some pretty disparaging coverage of the Board of Education. And I mean, I I am now reading, I've got a couple of notes from people in Monroe County, uh, different people, uh, none of them from Will Davis. I do have an email from Will Davis, but I also do note from others in Monroe County about the, uh, the superintendent's father's arrest got covered. Uh, and the child molester issue with the Board of Education. Y'all, listen, I, I, I don't mean to go, but I got my paper yesterday after the show. And I was like, man, I wish I had this yesterday morning show. This, of all the things to get worked up, you got a bunch of white liberals who are protesting a newspaper when they could either go start their own newspaper or they could they could just not read it. You got the Macon Telegraph. Why don't you just get the Macon Telegraph? You know, the Macon Telegraph could use more subscribers right now. The Macon Telegraph is my local newspaper, and it's like three pages long. This is a multi-section newspaper. It's just outrageous and infuriating uh, that in all, all the things to be whipped up about these days, it's the newspaper gives us bad coverage. 
Maybe the radio show host will give you bad coverage, too, if you're going to be that stupid about it. Good gracious. And, you know, this isn't just happening there. This happens all over the place. Everybody says they want local coverage. You get local coverage, and then suddenly, (gasps) it's not flattering coverage. How dare you give us this coverage? It's like the district attorney in Fulton County is under investigation for the Georgia Bureau of, by the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, so he's decided to indict those police officers. It had nothing to do with what they did. If it was not an election year and the DA were not in a runoff, the situation would be different in that Rashard Brooks would be dead, but the police officer would not be indicted. It is politicization, and that's why When our state legislature considers this hate crimes legislation, which is terrible, they need to at least make sure the police are protected class. And thus far, they have no inclination to do that. And we need, I need to bring you up to speed on what's happening in our state legislature with this hate crimes legislation when we come back, because it is terrible, terrible, no good legislation. And the lieutenant governor, I don't know if he's trying to kill it or if he's really bought into it, but there are some problems, serious problems in his revision to the hate crimes legislation. And we're going to need to discuss this when we come back. You guys need to get educated on this, and I'm going to make it real easy for you to take action to try to get rid of this. All right. We need to talk about this hate crimes legislation in the state legislature. I am philosophically opposed to hate crimes legislation because it's thought crimes and and the intent and state of mind of a criminal of a bad guy should be baked into any law already. Uh, so essentially you're, you're charging them twice for for one thing, uh, but you're boo because they were really they, they really hated the person. We're going to we're going to uh, amp it up. Um, the the state house is a feel good, do nothing hate crimes measure. The, the protected classes are essentially race, national origin, and sex and sexual orientation. Jeff Duncan, the lieutenant governor, has decided to amp it up and expand the hate crimes legislation so that it includes culture and creed. It includes um, people who've been in the armed services. It includes the First Amendment. It includes religion. Really notable that at a time of of church burnings and and synagogue uh, attacks that the House of Representatives didn't want to add people of faith to its hate crimes legislation. Very notable that they didn't want to do that. The the problem, though, is that Jeff Dungan's legislation, uh, the the more I delve into it, it it does a whole lot more, but it has some really bad stuff in it. Like, for example, uh, any member of the community could drum up uh, a grand jury investigation against someone if they they thought there was a hate crime. Uh, the DA wouldn't have to do it. Any, any member of the community could do it. This this is this is a bad bad thing. And on top of that, none of them, none of these these pieces of legislation include law enforcement as a protected class. Do you know there was an attack on a police officer for being a police officer in Gwinnett County? Uh, around the country, violence against police officers on the rise. I've got a friend whose father is a uh, police deputy who drives his car home at night and told his sons not to come by the house uh, right now because he's afraid of, of what could happen. If, if I mean, his car is a big, hey, there's a police officer here. I know people who've stopped driving their police cars home. Police and political speech should be clear protected classes in this hate crimes legislation. If we can't stop it, we need to make it better. 
And I highly encourage you to text the word ACTION to 55444. Text ACTION to 55444 and demand that police and political speech be added to this hate crimes legislation. I am told by so many conservatives in the legislature that we are not going to be able to stop something from passing. They want to pass something. Georgia's only one of four states that hasn't done the secular feel-good nonsense. So they're going to do something. But if they're going to do it, force them to put police in as a protected class. You know, they should add the Religious Freedom Restoration Act to it as well. It is really notable that our House of Representatives in Georgia did not want to add religious views as a protected class at a time of church shootings and and um, the arson attacks on synagogues and the like that they didn't want to put in that. People of faith, political speech at a time left leftists are trying to shut down people on college campuses, the police, they all should be protected classes in this. So here's what happens. If you text the word action to 55444, you're going to get a link back. And when you open the link on your cell phone, on your desktop computer, wherever, your tablet, what you'll find is a field. You put in your name and your address, and I will connect you with your member of the state Senate. And you will be able to generate a tweet if you have Twitter. You'll be able to generate an email, and you will be able to call them. I have turned on the call center, which I rarely do, but in this case, you need to burn down the phone lines in the state legislature. Light them up. Call them and tell them the police should. And by the way, if you want to call and tell them you oppose hate crime, you call and tell them you oppose the hate crimes measure. Tell them to, to kill it. Tell them don't you support it. That would be my preference is to kill it. I just I, I am told by enough people who are so depressed about it that they can't stop it. But at least you can get involved and get them to add the police as a protected class. Text the word action to 55444. 55444 is the number. The word that you send, just send the word action and you'll get a link back. Um, but you need to take action to protect our police because look at what has happened with the district attorney in Atlanta. Uh, the district attorney in Atlanta trying to grandstand on the backs of these police officers to get himself reelected. Look, if you're watching on the live stream today, please understand that the live stream, man, my internet connection sucks today. It does. Uh, that, that is the technical term for it, suckage of the internet. It is, it is, I have rebooted, I have done everything, and it is just garbage today. So uh, that's why you should listen on the radio anyway. There are plenty of local stations, uh, and you can go to theresurgent.com as well. Uh, and I, I believe there's a live stream there now. We, we, we finally got one up. Uh, now, I want to actually dive a little deeper into what has happened in Atlanta. Let me explain the Atlanta situation for you and why it's a political stunt. Uh, you know, so I've got this uh, daily newsletter that I do, um, and I put it out this morning. And I want to, I want to give you a sense of what's going on here. Paul Howard is the district attorney in Fulton County, Georgia. He's charged Garrett Rolfe with felony murder and the death of Rashard Brooks. Now, felony murder uh, can get you the death penalty. Uh, he has not said whether he will seek the death penalty. He won't. Uh, but 
you could get the death penalty for a felony murder charge in Georgia. But there are some details you need to be aware of here and, and why I think this is a complete political stunt. Uh, the first thing you need to know is that Paul Howard, the district attorney, is under an investigation by the Georgia Bureau of Investigation for allegations that he supplemented his income inappropriately through a nonprofit. Let me read you part of this. Uh, this is from May 4th of this year. The Georgia Bureau of Investigation has opened an investigation of Fulton County District Attorney Paul Howard and his use of a nonprofit to funnel at least $140,000 in City of Atlanta funds to supplement his salary. The criminal investigation comes at a time when Howard, Fulton's DA since 1997, is being challenged in the Democratic primary for re-election and is facing allegations of sexual harassment. In a statement issued Monday, Howard predicted he would be cleared of any wrongdoing. Uh, he says that, uh, the GBI will completely exonerate him in his investigation. He said the timing of the investigation is not lost on me. And yet this is a man who says we should see nothing in the timing of his indictment of officer Roth. Irony knows no bounds. Now, here's the thing. As a result of the investigation of the sexual harassment allegations, uh, Paul Howard went through the primary and is now in a runoff against uh, another Fulton County assistant district attorney who's challenging him for the job. And uh, Paul Howard is very embattled and in danger of losing. And so all of a sudden, starts indicting police officers. The man has never been a, a seriously aggressive prosecutor of police in his life. And now suddenly, in a matter of two weeks, has indicted three police officers. Actually, more than that, I believe. There was a situation a couple of weeks ago where two black police officers uh, smashed the windows of a vehicle and tased two black college students. And, and the race is important because uh, they are accused by these two college students' attorneys of perpetuating right, white supremacy. They were black police officers. Uh, tasering two black students. If you watch the video, what you see is these students are being told by the police to stop. They refuse to stop. The police come forward, bang on the window. They refuse to stop. So the police smash the windows and taser the two kids to get them to stop the vehicle. This is when the riots are going on. It's all happening downtown. They get fired. Keisha Lance Bottoms, the mayor, is outraged by it. And now the, the district attorney indicts them and says they used... Uh, uh, a lethal weapons on these two college students, the tasers. He considered them lethal weapons. Yesterday, he indicts this police officer in Atlanta. And one of the things he says in his indictment is even though Rashard Brooks stole the taser, the taser is not a lethal weapon in his mind. That's actually one of the arguments that he made. He also, interestingly enough, said Richard Brooks was not a threat to anyone. Never mind, Richard Brooks was drunk, uh, passed out in a Wendy's drive-thru, had driven there by himself, that inebriated, so inebriated he passed out. Here is uh, the Fulton County DA. We were able to conclude that based on the way that these officers conducted themselves while Mr. Brooks was lying there, that the demeanor of the officers immediately after the shooting did not reflect any fear or danger of Mr. Brooks, but their actions really reflected other kinds of emotions. So as we are drawing our legal conclusion in this case, 
Uh, we were led by the two foundational cases in this matter, uh, one being Tennessee versus Garner. And what that case points out is uh, when an officer is pursuing a fleeing suspect, that the officer may not use deadly force to prevent escape unless the officer has probable cause to believe that the suspect poses an immediate threat of death or of serious physical injury to that officer. The man turned around with a taser that Paul Howard two weeks ago said was a, a deadly weapon or a lethal weapon and fired it at the officer who, within three seconds, shot and killed Richard Brooks. Arrest warrants have already been signed. Uh, we are asking Officer Roth and Officer Bresnan to surrender themselves by 6 p.m. on the morrow. Uh, we are because uh, Officer Brosnan is now becoming a cooperating witness uh, for the state. Uh, we are asking the court to uh, grant a bond of $50,000 and to allow Mr. Uh, Officer Brosnan to sign that bond. Uh, as I indicated, that uh, he would become one of the first police officers to actually indicate that he is willing to testify against someone in his own department. Except Officer Brosnan's lawyer has now come out and said uh, he is not going to be a state's witness and he's not going to agree to plead guilty. This directly contradicts Paul Howard. Uh, the other thing you need to understand here is that the Georgia Bureau of Investigation that is indicting Paul Howard is also investigating this. The Georgia Bureau of Investigation is required to investigate uh, police shootings, and they have not concluded their investigation. And this is, to my knowledge, and I talked to several DAs, and they're not aware of any police-involved shooting where the DA indicted before the GBI concluded its investigation. It's highly unusual for this to happen. Uh, the mayor fired the officers. Howard is charging them with uh, murder, or at least the one with murder. And he's wait not even waiting for the GBI. He never even consulted with the GBI. The Georgia Bureau of Investigation actually released a statement to that effect. They, they put it out on Twitter even. Uh, they said that the Georgia Bureau of Investigation was requested by the Atlanta Police Department on Friday night, June 12th, to investigate an officer-involved shooting at the Wendy's restaurant. We're in the process of conducting this investigation. Although we have made significant progress, we've not completed the work. Our goal is every officer-involved shooting case we are requested to review is complete, thorough, and an impartial investigation. Now, I'm being told uh, by multiple people that the conclusions within GBI are that it was a justified shooting given the circumstances within the video and the eyewitnesses. But as that's probably why Howard rushed out ahead of them. Now, we've got a bunch of contradictory information from Paul Howard. Two weeks ago, a taser was a deadly weapon. Yesterday, it's not a deadly weapon. Uh, Brosnan is going to be a state's witness, and now he's not. He's going to plead guilty, and now he's not. 
Uh, overnight, the Atlanta Police Department uh, members walked off the job. Now, it wasn't official and it wasn't coordinated, but there were enough of them to do it. Uh, this is from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution today. A higher than no- usual number of Atlanta police officers failed to show up for work Wednesday night, hours after the district attorney announced criminal charges for two accused police officers in the death of Rayshard Brooks. The department is experiencing a higher than usual number of call-outs with the incoming shift. Uh, The Atlanta police said, we have enough resources to maintain operations and remain able to respond to incidents. On Wednesday, uh, he, Paul Howard announced the charges. One of the two, Garrett Rolfe, was fired. The other, Devin Brosnan, was placed on administrative duty. Neither Atlanta police nor a local union representative confirmed the number of officers involved. Vince Champion, Southeast Regional Director for the International Brotherhood of Police Officers, told the AJC he could not confirm which police zones were impacted. I was told it was East uh, East Atlanta and Buckhead were the ones most impacted. Uh, Atlanta's mayor said morale is, is obviously down within the police department. And no kidding. This is political grandstanding. Listen, I, I have entertained people who have called this program and said, you know, I saw the video and if I were the officer, I would have done something different. But you know what? You weren't the officer. You didn't go through the training. You're not even a police officer. I'm not going to second guess him. You know the difference between this and the uh, and the George Floyd situation? This all happened within a minute. With George Floyd, there were eight minutes and 46 seconds of a knee on his, his neck where that officer could have thought, hmm, maybe I should do something different. Here you've got less than a minute. There are 40 minutes of calm, and then all hell breaks loose, and in less than a minute, Rashard Brooks is dead. Should he be dead? No. Could they have done something different? Probably. But I wasn't there. I wasn't the police officer. I don't have the training. I wasn't there. I didn't experience it. I'm not going to second guess them. It's very interesting to me that uh, people want to call out uh, that Officer Rolfe's uh, file. Oh, he's had complaints against him in the past. What about Rashard Brooks' criminal record? If it's relevant on Rolfe, is it not relevant? Uh, did Did they pull up? Did they realize who they were dealing with? They looked at his criminal file. And they thought, oh, this guy, uh, he, he's got a history. we got to be careful with him. And suddenly the guy explodes. Are they not allowed to have that information? This is the mob through a desperate, political-hungry DA trying to ruin a man's life and send him to prison for being a police officer. There is plenty of police brutality in this country that we should be enraged about. We should be enraged about the Ahmaud Arbery situation. We should be really enraged about the George Floyd situation. We should. Who cares about their pasts? But in this situation, you've got a guy who explodes on the police, knocks two of them down. Officer Brosnan, according to his lawyer, has a concussion. The other officer gives chase, Rashard Brooks turns around and fires at the officer who pulls his gun and shoots him. The bottom line here is pretty straightforward. If you or I had assaulted two police officers, shoved them to the ground, stolen one of their tasers, run, and then turned around to fire it, we too would have been shot. The color of our skin would have nothing to do with it. 
and that no one wants to distinguish that and everyone wants to give Paul Howard a pass when he is clearly doing this to try to win re-election. And by the way, put it, oh, well, no, the grand jury's not even going to be able to get together until after the election is over in October. There's nothing nothing political about this. He actually said that, oh, no, the election can wait. This is a man who accused the Georgia Bureau of Investigation of investigating him to stir the election, who now says, oh, no, I'm not doing this because of the election. And by the way, the grand jury can't even meet until October after the election. Wonderful dismissed the charges the day after the election. Just absurd what is happening. Do you know it's it's disturbing the amount of it, so I got this show and the other show and in the evening show it's so Atlanta focused that I don't really get a lot of PR for hey let me be on your show but my goodness gracious the amount of PR emails I get to be on this program. Uh, so let, let me just say, let's take Al Mohler. If you weren't here in the first hour, Al Mohler, the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, he's got a new book out. Uh, I, I am happy to have him come on. I, if there's a book author, I gotta know the I gotta know the author. I gotta I gotta I gotta be friends with them or their publisher or some such or be interested in their book to have them on. Just you just can't get on the program, but. Good gracious. So this morning I have, let's see, an adult toy manufacturer would like to come on to talk about the rise of the adult toy industry during COVID-19 that in effect um, has something to do with there isn't a baby boom after all from COVID-19. People were expecting a baby boom, and it doesn't appear to be happening. And and the the, the adult toy manufacturer would like to discuss this. Uh, there is also the legalized marijuana person who actually is involved in CBD distribution and how the rise of CBD could make it easier to legalize recreational marijuana in this country, who would love to come on. Cush uh, Company Holdings, the premier provider of ancillary products and services to the legal cannabis and CBD industries. Uh, on how members of the Biden-Sanders task force are publicly pushing for marijuana reform. Could he come on? No, 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 no. As a general rule of thumb, you're not allowed. This is my program. Go get your own radio show. That being said, if you would like to get on the program, you can call in 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. If you want to be a part of the program, there is other stuff that we must talk about today including, I I wonder, related to the police in Atlanta, I I have a sneaking suspicion we're going to see a crime wave. When you had the police officers in Atlanta walk off the job, I just have to suspect that there's going to be a crime wave. When you see people maliciously going after the police. I suspect there's going to be a crime wave. When you see people defaming police officers, saying you can't be a police officer, trying to make it a a race issue within the police, I think there's going to be a crime wave. And I, I want to be delicate in how I say this, but I think if in regard to the protests and everything else that's happening, if there's a huge uptick in crime, that actually works to reelect the president. Because I don't, look, I, I think instability and chaos as a default 
actually helps Joe Biden. And the reason I say that is because when you're the president of the United States and things aren't going well in the country, even if it's not your fault, you get the blame for it. And I've always said presidents get way too much credit when the economy does well and they get way too much blame when the economy doesn't do well because there really isn't a ton of stuff that presidents can do. But you get the blame and you get the credit. And when the country's not doing well, you get the blame for that too, even if it's not your fault. And I, I'm just, I, my my guess is, my suspicion is that the chaos works to Joe Biden's advantage. But Joe Biden is so connected to and tied to the police and the chaos of the police. Uh, I'm sorry, he's not tied to the police. He's tied to the chaos of the protesters against the police. He's tied to Black Lives Matters, all of that, uh, that if this if there's a big crime wave, I think it helps the president uh, because who are you going to go with? The guy who is on the side of the people who disrupted the police or the guy who has the backs of the police? Because ultimately, if you're a soccer mom in the suburbs, you want your kids safe, and that means you need police, and they would side with the president on that, I think. Uh, Kim in Hampton, I'm going to go to you next. Welcome to the program. Hi, Eric. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I've been trying. I tried to call you last night on your radio show. Everybody obviously wanted to talk to you. Uh, There's a lot of heat going on in this country. And for one, I'm just, I don't know what to do about it. I want to do something. My husband is a deputy for Henry County. My son is a deputy for Henry County. I've I've been praying. I've been looking inward. I want to know if there's any racist tendencies in my life i've been asking god to point it out but i'm tired of this why can't people teach their kids to obey the law teach your family obey the law don't go out there and break the law and then respect our cops and yeah there's ones that need to be taken out of the law enforcement and and we'll find those and i agree with law enforcement reform but what can i do to support and, and back the blue i guess is how they call it what they say you know, I, I got to tell you, um, being a good citizen, I, I think that's the number one thing. Uh, calling the legislature, make sure the police are added as a protected class to hate crimes, I, I think it's definitely uh, call your legislator and, and push them on that. You know, it, 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 Kim, I, I got a commercial break coming up, but I actually want to talk about this particular issue uh, when we come back, because you and my wife, I think, are probably in, in very similar situations. She's been doing a lot of reading and thinking and listening uh, what can she do differently? What has she done? Uh, where are we as a society? What can we do with our kids? And it, man, it is dwelling on people, but it's also, I think there's an element of it that's beginning to grate on some people as well, that they're starting to see it doesn't matter what they do, that unless they do exactly what the other side demands them to do, they're still going to be considered a bad person. And that's not right. So where do we go as a people and as a country? Let's talk about that when we come back. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. Boy, has a lot happened in the commercial break. (laughs) We'll get to it. Uh, This hour brought to you by Mrs. Griffin's Barbecue Sauce. Uh, Let me, uh, you know, I I give them casual mentions in passing uh, all the time. Uh, But I just, I got to tell you, last night's dinner was brought to you by me. So there's this new place in town and I got chicken tenders and their barbecue sauce was really gross um that came with it and it won't be going back i'm not gonna i'm not gonna disparage the restaurant but i was just needless to say 
I, I was disappointed, um, but man, Mrs. Griffin sure did make it better. So I will give them a, a particular shout out at the beginning of this program in this hour that if you haven't tried Mrs. Griffin's barbecue sauce, you absolutely should. Uh, the oldest commercially manufactured barbecue sauce in the United States, and it actually is manufactured right here in Macon, Georgia, where I am. And you can find it at your local store. As I mentioned the other day when I was up at Lake Burton, uh, went into the local grocery store and there was Mrs. Griffin's barbecue sauce. And you can find it all over the place. So thank you to them for sponsoring the program. They're delicious. I use the, I probably, ketchup and, and barbecue sauce are probably my two favorite condiments and Mrs. Griffin's. You know, I, I do have to say, it's it's kind of the the, the nice thing about the way I'm doing this. I, I'm still not getting paid for this program. Uh, I, I have to have even more advertising revenue, but... Uh, I like the fact that the advertisers are actually advertisers that I actually know or use or like. So like Mrs. Griffin's, I know the CEO. And before I even knew the CEO, I was using Mrs. Griffin's barbecue sauce. And now they advertise. Or First Liberty, building and loan. Uh, in, in Which, by the way, if you need to get into the PPP, you probably need to go check with them because it runs out. Um, it, June 30th is the last day to accept applications. So FirstLibertyGA.com is their website. If you need into PPP, go check them out. Um, but I, I know the Frost family have known them for years and, and now they advertise there or Chris Burns and Dynamic Money, who actually is my financial advisor. And it's nice to see friends of mine that I've built up relationships with who are willing to, to take a chance on me in the show. Uh, but I still need more advertisers um, to, so that I can actually not do this for free <laughs> in any event. Let's move on. The Supreme Court has thrown out the uh, DACA decision. I, I, I want to be real honest with you here. Uh, this is, maybe I am a cynical person. Maybe I'm not cynical enough, but I actually think that the decision today by John Bolton, much like the census decision has everything to do with John Roberts thinking Donald Trump sucks and nothing to do with being a sellout. And, and if you want to say he's he's a total squish, he's a sellout, he's, he's a liberal, go for it. There are a lot of my conservative friends today who are really upset. He says, all, all this conservative revolution, and it's all screwed up. I, when do they turn on the Federalist Society? I, I don't know. Um, here's, here's the thing. If you look at the if you look at the Gorsuch decision on Monday with sexual orientation and transgender status. The way I read that decision is that Gorsuch knew this was coming and worked very hard to shape a unanimous decision that actually blocks it from going much further. So, for example, Gorsuch in his decision singles out transgender status as opposed to being transgender. In other words, binding transgenderism, that there is a, a movement in this country where people don't just identify as he or she, but as they or as Z or some other nonsense. And uh, if you read the Gorsuch decision, he actually binds transgender status, not as gender identity, but as a man who thinks he's a woman or a woman who thinks he's a man and no other genders, which sets him up to be able to, in the upcoming case, of boys in girl sports say, no, this isn't a matter of you thinking you're a girl here. This is a matter of biological sports is a matter of biological difference. And there's a big difference between transgender status and that. And he can cite this unanimous opinion of the Supreme Court to block that. Uh, and, and the left on the Supreme Court is going to have a very hard, hard position. On this DACA case, I've been skimming uh, the, the Roberts decision. Kavanaugh has a much better dissent. 
but I really like the census case. I read it not as John Roberts is opposed to getting rid of DACA and not as John Roberts was even opposed to the census stuff, but that John Roberts thinks Donald Trump sucks and he doesn't trust the Trump administration, to be honest. I mean, that that's the heart of the, if you recall the census case, uh, the census case was about whether the administration could could put citizenship on it. And what actually happened, if, if we want to be really intellectually honest about it, what happened is that they made a political decision to do it and they didn't run the traps. There are, when you do something administratively in government, there are procedures and laws you have to follow. And the administration said, no, we're going to do it. And they did it. And they didn't run all those regulatory traps they were supposed to run. And then when they were called out on it, you had three different people giving three different excuses for why they did it. And John Roberts said, you know what, BS, you guys don't have a consistent story here. We shouldn't believe you. And he said in the case that he didn't have a problem with them doing it. It's just he needed them to all be on the same page. And now in this DACA decision today, in the DACA decision, John Roberts again says essentially, we don't, you can do this. You you can repeal one administration, can't bind another administration. This administration has every right to undo what the prior administration did on DACA. The problem is you didn't follow the procedure by which you must do that. You gave us multiple competing answers for why you wanted to do it as opposed to sticking to one story and, and we're not going to let you get away with it. And, and that to me sounds like uh, the that's John Roberts saying, I think you people suck and and you need to be better than this if you're going to get away with it or I'm not going to let you do it. It's John Roberts trying to be the grown up of the room and that can make you mad and that's a fair point that that's not Roberts' position. But ultimately, you've got two cases now from the Supreme Court, the census case and this, where Robert says, what you want to do is perfectly legally fine with me, but you sucked in how you did it, and you've got to do it the right way. And with the Gorsuch decision on Monday, I I actually am in the camp of people, given what I know behind the scenes about both Gorsuch and Roberts, I genuinely am in the camp that Gorsuch and Roberts joined the majority to make sure that they could steer this case now to prevent other things in the future. And you can say that's wrong and they should have done it. And I agree with you, actually. I'm just trying to explain why they did it. Don't take my analysis of it as an endorsement of it. It's not. But I think that's what they're doing. And... I don't think that they are suddenly selling out, and I don't think that they are are suddenly collapsed. I don't think that they're suddenly bad. Uh, I think you will start seeing now. Now we got a couple of cases coming up where we'll we'll be able to decide whether or not this is the case or not. But I do also think that you will see Gorsuch and Kavanaugh and Roberts uh, be decidedly more conservative if there's a Biden administration. Uh, but that happened. And in so happening, uh, conservatives are outraged today that they lost their legal revolution, uh, having been emotionally invested in judges stopping bad things from happening. Uh, Those judges not only stopped it, but made it worse, uh, which, again, is why I think conservatives should not put their hope 
in the judiciary, you too, much like the left, need to learn how to win elections. And you can say, well, we won, we won, we, we won the presidency. Yes, you won the presidency, but you lost the popular vote there, and then you lost Congress two years later. And the way the polling is going right now, you're going to lose the presidency. And the president needs to figure this out. The president needs to come up with a plan to win. There is great lamenting. And listen, the New York Times, Maggie Haberman has this piece in the New York Times today of, of, oh, the Trump behind the scenes aides are all upset. They don't think he's really in it to win it. His mind's not there. He can't keep himself. He can't help himself. He can't control himself. What are we going to do? And the tendency all of us, myself included, have in reading these New York Times stories is, really, come on. But I know some of these people. I do, and they are a little bit concerned with the president's inability to control himself. One thing where I think the, the we have an opportunity is on police reform and making it about police reform and the benefit to the black community that the president has had. I still think the president needs to engage the black community. Here's Senator Tim Scott. Well, if we do not, then they'll have to explain to the families that I met with yesterday at the White House and the families that I met with yesterday in my office on why we're not willing to take seriously some of the uh, changes that are important to those families who've lost loved ones because of the police interaction. This bill modeled after much of the House bill is an important step in the right direction. It also includes the focuses the focus of the president and the uh, priorities in the executive order. So we have a chance to do something meaningful for the American people, especially communities of color who are losing uh, confidence in the institutions of authority in this country. They are. And I think the Republicans have the opportunity to build back up trust in the police in this country. I want to play you two clips that happened on the floor of the sink yesterday. Uh, Tim Scott has been attacked as being a token by some partisan activists. And Dick Durbin, the senator of Illinois, went to the floor of the Senate yesterday. Senator Scott pursuing police reform, but not just pursuing police reform. He's got a lot of what the Democrats want in the legislation. And this is how Dick Durbin talks about it. We have fought this issue in America for over 400 years. That's how long slavery it's been since slavery came to our shores. And the racism that followed from it, was part of it, is still very much alive in America and seen in video after video. And these younger people are telling us once and for all, change it, grown-ups. You're supposed to be in charge. You're supposed to have the authority. So what we say on the Democratic side is we cannot waste this historic moment, this singular opportunity. Let's not do something that is a token half-hearted approach (coughs) excuse me a token half-hearted approach well senator scott went to the floor of the senate to respond to think that on this day as we try to make sure that fewer people lose confidence in this nation to have the senator from illinois refer to this process this bill this this opportunity to restore hope and, and confidence and trust from the American people, from African Americans, from communities of color, to call this a token process hurts my soul for my country, for our people. To think that the concept of anti lynching that's a part of this legislation 
to be considered a token piece of legislation because perhaps I'm African-American and I'm the only one on the side of the aisle. I don't know what he meant, but I can tell you that this day to have those comments again hurts the soul. It should hurt his soul to, to have his – he's been called a token, and now you have the senior senator from Illinois come out and call his policies a token. And the Democrats are silent, by the way. The, the other Senate Democrats aren't calling out Dick Durbin on this. They're, they're not calling out Dick Durbin. Can you imagine if a Republican member of the Senate referred to a black Democrat's policies as token, what the media would do and hear the media? I, I suspect the media agrees. That's why they're not calling him out. And that in and of itself is, is, is an issue of race. Now, I haven't forgotten uh, Kim from Hampton. We had all this stuff happen in the break, but I want to talk about this when we come back. What do you do? What do you do to support the police? What do you do to support real reform in this country? What do you do to support moving beyond racism in this country? What do you do? And particularly, what do you do when the other side makes demands of you that are unreasonable? Let's explore that. I'll take your phone calls as well. 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Hello there. Okay, I so... Kim and Hampton, please be patient with me. There, there's a uh, there's a tweet that has over 12,000 retweets from last night. Uh, and and here, here's the tweet. Prayers, please. Husband is Atlanta PD. Stuck at HQ because the protesters are surrounding it. All zones have walked off the job. Other shifts called in. That's a tweet from last night. It's got 12.7 thousand, uh, 12.7, good Lord, uh, 12,700 likes or retweets and 32,800 likes. It is an anonymous account that came online in March. And, you know, I, I do my evening show is called Atlanta's Evening News. It is... Widely listened to. If I could just brag about my ratings, but they won't let me. Um, it, it is widely listened to. And I talked to a lot of police as I was getting off the air yesterday, and they told me about the walkouts that were happening. I talked to three officers who confirmed it and told me the precincts, but then it, it appeared it wasn't organized. And I wound up deleting a tweet that got a lot of actual recirculation because it made it sound like there was an organized effort, and there wasn't. There were police who walked off the job in Atlanta last night. Or they were at their job, but they just didn't take phone calls. They didn't respond. But there were no protesters surrounding police headquarters last night. And I'm just, so I'm looking at this account. It's an anonymous account and and suddenly claiming the husband is in the police and the police headquarters were surrounded there. There was literally no report of a police headquarters surrounded last night by protesters in Atlanta. Uh, and I do do this thing called Atlanta's Evening News. I do pay attention to these stories, and I do have a lot of police officers that I, I interact with, trade text messages with. They've got my phone number. It's just very, very interesting. And I suspect we're going to see even more of this, of, of pot stirrers, anonymous accounts, treated somehow as credible that maybe aren't. And, and I don't know who this person was. 
And maybe there was a precinct where a couple of protesters showed up and they decided to leave. I, I don't know, but I can tell you it was it, it, this thing's it was this tweet's been circulated all over the place. And I am unaware of protesters surrounding uh, police headquarters in Atlanta, which is what is claimed in this tweet nor that uh, all the precincts walked out. So Atlanta actually is divided into zones. It's one way you can distinguish between outsiders and insiders in Atlanta is they don't refer to police precincts so much in Atlanta as police zones. Uh, zone two is the Buckhead area. Uh, zone six, I believe, is, is East Atlanta, the little Hipsterville area. Uh, and I was told those were most of the officers who decided not to engage were. Uh, and I heard more and more last night as the night went on that uh, a lot of this was individual officers being so fed up with the situation that they themselves chose not to engage. It was not a coordinated effort or anything like that. But I, I have to tell you, I am concerned about malicious pot stirrers out there, uh, both domestic and foreign, who are trying to spread rumors that aren't really true. And we all need to be careful about it. You know, I've fallen for it and you've fallen for it. Uh, we see stuff from people we trust. Uh, and those people have gotten it from from dubious sources and they jump the gun. So we jump the gun. And, and I always try to correct the record here with you guys if something like that happens. But we're, we need to be very, very wary of this. Now, I want to move to Kim's topic. And I want to spend the last half hour of this program on the topic. And I'm also willing to take your phone calls, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. And one of the things that is woven into the fabric of this is what do you do about the Confederate monuments? Because that's a, I, I, I will tell you, I get more angry hate mail from listeners over me saying I don't really care about them than I do from almost any other topic. And I have to tell you in my mind, I, I there there's an issue there and it troubles me. There is a path forward for this country and for us, for those of you who listen as conservatives, uh, and it is a path uh, of some level of compromise and some level of recognition, but also some level of defiance. There comes a time where we're probably going to have to dig our heels in and say, nope, not going down this path. And I suspect that time is fast approaching. For those of us who say, you know what, there are problems in this country and we need and we need to fix those problems, uh, but we're not going to fix them in this way. We're not going to embrace socialism and throw out capitalism. We're not going to engage in wholesale wealth redistribution. There are things that can be done and things that should be done. But also, what do you do if you support the police but also realize there's injustice in the country? Well, there's a path forward for that as well. We need to talk about that all when we come back. I'll take your phone calls as well right here on The Eric Erickson Show. It is Eric Erickson here across the state of Georgia and beyond now. The phone number is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Yeah, I'm giving it too fast. Right? 877-973-7425. In the last hour, 
Kim called. And her husband's a police officer. And she's been wondering what she can do with regard to racial reconciliation in this country, but also what she can do to support the police. If you live in Georgia, one thing you can do to support the police is text the word ACTION to 55444 and tell the state Senate that if they are intent on passing hate crimes legislation, which they should not do, but if they're intent on doing it, at least add police as a protected class. That matters. Then text it's the one word. All you do is send the word action and you text it to the number five five four four four. You'll get a link back. Just follow the link, put in your name and address. You can email, you can even call your state senator and tell them the police should be a protected class. But we're in this weird time now, and I'm afraid we're going to lose it because of uh, histrionics on both sides. But the fact is that we are not that far removed in the grand scheme of things. We're not that far removed from the end of segregation and Jim Crow. We are further removed from our soldiers storming the beaches of Normandy on D-Day than we are from that. And the history of it still remains. Into the 1980s, there were places in this country where if you were black, you were strongly discouraged from living. We have places like that here in Georgia. That's just the reality. Uh, There are a lot of people who want to dance around this. No, that's not really true. Yes, it's true. And it is going to be time that heals But it's going to be time and you spent with your children. I am perturbed by those who essentially are taking, you know, I mentioned this the other day. One of the things that has bugged me greatly through life is is this whole idea that uh, if you deny you're an alcoholic, you're an alcoholic. What if you don't drink? What if you've never had a sip of alcohol and you deny you're an alcoholic? Well, you must be an alcoholic. It, it, it's If you deny you're a racist now, well, you're a racist if you deny it. It, it is essentially a, a way of, of putting every person, even those who don't have a racist bone in their body, as being a racist. And that's not helpful, but that's what's happening. That if you're not actively doing something to dismantle systemic racism, you are a part of the problem. There's only so much, though, that any individual can do. You can spend your time with your children and ensure that your children understand the history of this country, not the 1619 revision, but the actual history of this country. That we as a nation were founded by a group of men who believed that they were heirs of the British system and that they wanted the English Bill of Rights for themselves because they believed they were Englishmen. And when they were denied that and told they weren't Englishmen but colonists, they revolted. It was a conservative revolution to grab what they thought was already theirs, unlike the French Revolution where they wanted to throw off the old regime and bring on something new. The Americans didn't actually want to throw off the British system. They wanted to throw off the monarchy only because at that point they realized the monarchy was standing between them and the English Bill of Rights, which they thought was theirs. It was a conservative revolution. 
And you don't have to read George Washington or Alexander Hamilton or Thomas Paine. Read The Soldier Fighting in the Field. Read the ideological origins of the American Revolution from Bernard Balin, who actually read the letters and correspondence of the middle class. And, and they were talking about all these things. It wasn't a mercantilist revolution, and it wasn't to defend the slave. It wasn't to defend slavery. In fact, uh, the people in this country in the American Revolution who fought the American Revolution, uh, most of them knew slavery was destabilizing and was going to need to be dealt with. Even Thomas Jefferson knew that they needed to deal with slavery, but they continued, continued, continued to say, "Yes, but this is more important." They won the war. They built the country. We got to do something with slavery. Yes, but unifying the country is more important. They, they, they wrote the Constitution and they need to deal or they wrote the Articles of Confederation. And, and now we need to deal with slavery. Yes, but we actually got to make the country more perfect by dealing with the Constitution. And, and we got to rewrite the Articles of Confederation and, and do the Constitution. Yes, but it's always yes, but yes, it's bad, but. And they continued to put it off, and ultimately the situation cascaded. It became intolerant. It was white Christians who led the abolitionist movement, starting with William Wilberforce in Great Britain, moving into the United States. There was an abolitionist cause morally compelling against slavery. The Civil War started. The Civil War ended. Lincoln is assassinated. And a lot of people just want to put the country back together again and move on as if nothing ever happened. Oh, you guys lost. Let's get together. Yes, but... Slavery's still bad. Now slavery's gone. There's still segregation, racism. Yes, but it's it's more important to put the country together. Now is the time to no longer say yes, but but yes. Well, all of the big eight things have been put aside. Can we now deal with this issue? You have a country where slavery exists in a a significant portion of it. You have the Civil War. You have freed men now are given the right to vote and then systematic injustice upon injustice throughout the country, not just in the South, but in the North as well. Where systems are put in place to provide barriers to entry, to land acquisition, to voting rights, to the workforce, a system of separate but equal upheld by the Supreme Court until uh, Brown versus Board of Education, and we're still dealing with the fallout of it. And we're dealing with the fallout of well-intentioned liberals who decided that they could uh, expand the social welfare net and that families no longer mattered and the two-parent nuclear household could be replaced by Uncle Sam's man boob and on and on and on it went. And, and we had the collapse of the family. We've had a uh, rise of crime. We've had black men in jail for, for a host of, of social ills where they didn't necessarily need to be in jail, let alone even, even charged with crimes. And we have an entire system. And along the way, white people could acquire wealth, they could acquire property, they could acquire good jobs. And black people were left behind. And I think you have to acknowledge that. You may not like to, it may be uncomfortable, but I think you have to acknowledge it. So what do you do about it? Well, I think the one thing you don't do is the thing that a lot of activists on the left want to do, which is to, to you acknowledge that yes, um, black people do not have the head start white people do in this country. But the solution should not be to, okay, white people, hand over your property or pay a tax or reparations. You know what reparations would actually do? All it would do would be allow, uh, uh, allow good white liberals to stop having to care about the issue. The issue wouldn't go away. Oh, we just wrote you a check. We're, uh, bygones. That's what reparations – that's why so many white liberals really want reparations. 
is because they really just want to stop having to care about this issue. They got other stuff to care about. They they got to worry about uh, LGBTQ issues now. They can't. They don't have time to worry about this issue anymore. Let's just hand write them a check and move on. There are still problems, but here's the thing: the problem is not going to be an economic socialist revolution in this country. It's not going to be to fan resentment. What it's going to be is time. And that's not fair. It sucks. For people who've been left behind, it sucks. But what do you do in that time? In that time, you do a better job of investing in your local community. You want to care about racial injustice in your community? Go out and help in your community. Encourage your church to integrate better. Maybe find a church that's better integrated. Maybe make sure that your children have friends who aren't just white. And that they're actual actual friends, not just casual friends, but real committed friends who support each other and pray for each other. Maybe have your children go work at a food bank or a soup kitchen and see poverty and start exploring what can we do to help other people? What can we do to engage our community? See, here's the thing, and, and, and this is where I become a broken record. You're not going to change the situation of the country, and I'm not going to change the situation of the country, but you are going to change the situation in your own backyard. Seek the welfare of the community in which you live, and there you will find your welfare. You want to do that? Do that. You've got family who are police officers. Y'all go out and work and be engaged in your community and be good neighbors. And here's the thing. You do have to dig in your heels at some point and say, you know what? I'm not the problem. Because that's one of the things that is striking to me are the number of, of, of people I know, people who are friends of mine, who suddenly say, you know what? I, I am the problem. You are not a problem. You are made in the image of God and you are not a problem. You are a sinner, but so is everyone else. But don't be made to think you are the problem because you're actually the solution. You're the solution to what ails your community. You are the solution to what ails justice. You are the solution to injustice. You are the solution by being engaged in your community. Does it mean you got to pull your kid out of private school? No. Get your kid the best freaking education you possibly can. And if your kid is in public school, you be in that public school every single day volunteering if you can. And if you think your kid would be better served in a private school, you get your kid in a private school. But you make sure your, 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 your child is learning the real history of this country, the proud history of this country that also has its flaws. And you learn the flaws. And then you get your child to be invested in their community. And if you're in a private school and your private school is all white, well, you figure out how can we give scholarships to help bring people who aren't white into our school? How can we raise money or how can we give away seats in our school to help integrate our private school? This is one of the things I like about the Opportunity Scholarships in Georgia where you can give money to these scholarships. And they can be used by poorer families to get their kids into private school. We should not have less of that. We should have more of that. There are things you can do to improve. And you know, here's the other thing. 
we are going to have to confront the Confederate memorials. And this this makes friends of mine mad. I, I get more hate mail on this topic than anything else. And y'all, I love you, but I, I disagree with some of you on this. I agree that lines have to be drawn. It's only a slippery slope, though, if you slide. It's only a slippery slope if you let yourself slide. But you've got half of the country looks at these Confederate memorials and sees monuments to the men who enslaved their families. And I don't think they should be crushed. I don't think they should be uh, torn down. I think they should be put somewhere where they can still be seen or leave them and put a monument next to them that shows we move beyond that. Put a picture of Frederick Douglass, Booker T. Washington, Martin Luther King Jr., Rosa Parks. Put a statue of them staring in the eye of the Confederate soldier. He, that soldier, may be facing north and they're facing south. Put a statue of them staring him in the eye, a bigger statue, a bigger man. I don't think we should tear him down. Put him somewhere. But I also don't think you should be emotionally invested in their preservation. If we want to be a country where we're, we're all moving forward together, we need to be a country where we're also understanding the sensitivities of people who look at those statues and say, those men enslaved my family. And you, you should be sensitive to that. If you're, you're supposed to be a good neighbor, and a good neighbor is sensitive to the concerns of his neighbors, it doesn't mean you always agree, but it means you should be sensitive and you should try to accommodate that sensitivity. It's like, man, I, I hate to go there, but I'm going there. It's like wearing masks in public. I don't understand the people who are outraged by the request to wear masks in public. It's about being a good neighbor. It's about reading ourselves of a virus quicker than we otherwise would. All you got to do is put the mask on. It's not about you getting it. It's about you having it and not knowing it and spreading it to other people, the old, the infirmed. It's the same with this other stuff. Commit just to be a good neighbor. Dig your heels in when they come for you and say you're a racist and you're not a racist. Say, no, I'm not. When they come for you and say, you've got to give to other people now what you've earned uh, because it's not fair, say no. I'll help you go forward. And here's the last thing. There are systems in place in Washington and in Atlanta and in your local community where the rich have set up systems to give themselves more of an advantage on the playing field. It's not capitalism. It's actually cronyism. If you ensure there's a better free market, if you ensure that there is less regulation, you ensure that someone with less capital can get into the free market and make more capital. See, socialism, all socialism would do, you, you, you rearrange the deck chairs on the, on the Titanic. You, you take from some and give to others, but you still, those people who are in power, they're still in power. And you're never going to get the people in power to, to, to untangle themselves from power. What you can do is you can allow others to compete with them. And right now we have a system that minimizes the ability to compete and a more free market with less cronyism and less regulation and less taxes and less burdens would allow those people to compete and tear down the system through the free market, through better ideas, through more innovation, through a better product. 
And we don't have that right now. We need to do that. But what do you do personally at the end of the day? You teach your kids to be good neighbors to all people, to see through race to the character of other people. And you don't feel guilty or be made to feel guilty because of things that your ancestors did because they're dead and you're alive and you're not the problem. You, my friends, are the solution. All right, my friends, I am... I got to head to Clarksville here in a little bit. I, I'm I'm at an event up there this evening, um, so you will you will see me up there, I suppose. Uh, if you're in the Clarksville area, no 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 reason to make a trip. You you may not be invited. Uh, I got to play this clip by the Vice President of the United States because he makes a point. Uh, as the media suddenly, you know, the President is having his rally in Tulsa on Saturday, and the media is in absolute meltdown over the President having a rally after they turned a blind eye to the protests for weeks. Well, the Vice President makes a good point. Well, Charles, good to be with you. Thanks. Uh, I think what they're missing is what the American people have accomplished over the course of this coronavirus pandemic. Is that Despite the fact that some some networks like to put put maps up with lots of red states, the reality is, as of this morning, uh, there are only 11 counties uh, in America that are seeing accelerating new cases, and and only about two percent of the counties in this country are seeing any significant increases in cases at all. And the truth is that. Now that all 50 states and our territories are are reopening, we're proving we can do that in a safe and responsible way. In the areas where we're seeing increases in cases, uh, in places like uh, like Texas and and Florida, uh, the reality is that those states are also focusing on vulnerable populations, whether it be nursing homes or prisons uh, or meatpacking plants. And that combined with a massive increase in testing all across the country, I, I think is creating the impression uh, for some Americans that, uh, uh, that we're in a different place. But the reality is, because of the strong leadership of President Donald Trump, because the American people embraced those mitigation efforts, because of the recovery efforts that we secured uh, from the Congress, and because states across the country are responsibly reopening we're we're getting there uh we're getting there as a nation and every single day uh we're one step closer to putting the coronavirus in the past you know we are and even georgia here the the trend lines were largely we're seeing an uptick in georgia but we know where the uptick is coming from gwinnett county in particular uh is surging past fulton county there are 11 counties in the united states seeing big explosions of the virus. Uh, there are highly populous counties and they are what are impacting the numbers here. Uh, it, it, what is remarkable to me is that the New York centric media uh, largely ignored everything about Andrew Cuomo and is now suddenly cheering on New, uh, New York seemingly having this under control and pointing out the rest of the nation says, Oh, you people are screwing up. Really not. Uh, and, and I, I, I gotta wonder, I, I still think part of this, there's a, a level of partisanship on the issue of Southern states not being as hard hit and potentially rebounding when some of these other states aren't going to. And I think that's a problem. I, you know, I, I follow this site, rt.live. 
and it shows the rate of transmission. If you have a one or higher, the, the virus is reproducing in society. And if it's less than one, uh, then it, it, everything is good. And what, what I find interesting about Georgia is that Georgia had fallen down to about 0.7 and then rebounded uh, up to about a 1.2. It's now down to, to one. We're headed again back in the right direction. And some of these other states are screwed up. But Georgia, Brian Kemp's doing a good job, and he deserves credit, not partisanship from the media on this.